Anyway, let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you that you have welcomed us into this day, that each of us have opened our eyes and put our feet on the ground, that we have a, a body that will respond, at least mostly, and that we can see and touch and feel and experience the love of the neighbors around us and the love of the creation that you surrounded us with. We are a grateful God and we pray that we will have enough wisdom to stop and be grateful. We thank you, God, that today that there are doctors that will be attending to Rich and we pray and lift the, this family up, oh God, that the hands will be steady and sure and that this procedure will uh, be flawless and that a good and speedy and complete recovery will ensue. Thank you, God, for all the hope that you give us all the time. We pray, God, for those who are mourning loss today. We pray for Lorna Miller and the loss of her mom yesterday. We thank you, God, that you have been in attendance to that family as they have walked with her through this last moments of her journey. And God, we thank you and we praise you and we ask that we might have hearts that are wide open and minds that are able to receive your word as it comes to us in your scripture. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen. You shall not murder. That's the scripture today from Exodus 20, 13, the sixth commandment. Of all the commandments, I think that this particular one is the most intimate and the most connected to the depths of the human soul that you can possibly be because it is a matter of our own existence. A few years ago, I was asked to put together a service at a, um, a penitentiary that housed uh, death row. And I was asked to put together a service and the service, those invited to the service would be the victims of people that were murdered would be the family, the, the family of the victims, would be the families of the perpetrators, and would be the uh, staff, so the guards, the warden, the chaplain, all of those together. And so it was a service called a service of remembrance and reconciliation. And so in putting that service together, it began to emerge for me even more profoundly than I had experienced before, how there can never be an isolated murder. You can never kill someone and it doesn't, the, the effects of it goes out beyond its borders and beyond and beyond. And the effects of it are so profound and so um, excruciating 
for so many people that it really is so vital that we keep in mind that this is nothing casual and we cannot be callous about it. Because nothing, I think, enrages a person more or confuses a person more or bewilders a person more or disappoints or puts a knife in your heart more than the audacity of another person to take your loved one from you or for a system to decide there is no future, there is no hope. And so when that hopelessness comes, then we have this grand void. So what do we do with all of that? Our scripture, actually, those few words that you just heard are expounded upon throughout all of scripture, and we can come to some conclusions about it. So this is the, the last six commandments, and they have to do with relationships among social equals. That means it's not rules and regulations about people who are less than you or people that are more than you or people that are different than you. It's about all of us together. These six commandments are about how do we, how do we as a society interact and honor God's creation and God's order of creation. And that's going to be a big element in what we're going to talk about today. So uh, this commandment has come in for more than its share of consideration over the years, and not least in most recent times. And it's because people go to this and they take hold of it and they hold it as a proof text of whatever side they are happening to find themselves on, from everything from war to capital punishment, suicide, euthanasia, self-defense, abortion. All of these are questions, but all of them have one thing in common. They're the ending of something. And so we look to this and we say, here is the word, the absolute word about that. You would hope that it would be that simple. It never is because life is not simple. We are complicated, aren't we? Um, Though the command itself doesn't make any distinctions, we are faced with um, not only with its meaning, but with its possible legitimate extensions. Does it extend out to talk about self-defense? Does it extend out to talk about euthanasia and, and all of these other things? But before we can get to what the commandment means, we have to understand and we need to understand exactly what this commandment says. In point of fact, it's not quite so simple as saying that the commandment means you are never to kill. It's not that easy. The meaning of the verb to kill, rasach in Hebrew, has been very debated very debated about what this actually means. But uh, biblical linguist, linguistics has spent an enormous time of energy and, uh, and, and debate and also scholasticism on ferreting out what this means. And the way they can do that is they can look at the entire entirety of the scriptures 
along with the entirety of the way this term is used in extra-biblical manuscripts. That means things that are outside of the Bible, like rules and regulations that are in other places. So how is this term used? What they came up with was, uh, I'm going to share with you the top three linguistic scholars of today and what they determined in their studies after all of these years. And one interesting thing to note is that Philip Ryken, who's one of those scholars, points out that the Hebrew language has at least eight different words for killing. Eight different words, so eight different. So when are those words used? That becomes very important as we look at the, what the scripture actually means. He says the, the Hebrew language has at least eight different words for killing and that the word that's used in Exodus 20:13, Ratzak, refers to, and listen to this, because as I give you these definitions, it's going to be important that it informs you of how we talk about the rest of, of killing and death. So he says that it refers to the unjust killing of a legally innocent life. Riken translates the commandment as, you shall not kill unlawfully. And then we have the next scholar, William Propp, who argues that the translation, thou shalt not kill, is misleading and it's far too broad. He points out that the verb resak means illegally to kill a human being and translates the phrase, don't murder. So we have, you shall not kill unlawfully, and we have, don't murder. Then the third and final Douglas um, scholar, Douglas Stewart, says the word kill is specific to putting to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than with authorization as killing in the administration of justice or killing in divinely ordained holy war. And translate this commandment, never murder. So that word, that one word of the eight words that we have that's used in this particular scripture, you shall not kill unlawfully, don't murder, and never murder are the translations that we come up with for this particular scripture. And it's really important to understand that these commentators are not in any way trying to hedge their bets, looking for uh, loopholes for us as human beings because we seem to not be able to stop killing each other. But they are actually trying to offer an honest translation based on how the Old Testament itself speaks about killing. And what they've concluded after all of this research and all of this debate and all these years, the one thing that they have concluded is this. The Hebrew terminology is not offering us a wooden blanket ban on all killing in every circumstance. In view of certain passages, like from 1 King, it's been suggested that the verb, of course, is murder, as we just talked about. But in some, in some cases, it also refers to unintentional killing. Deuteronomy 4. In Deuteronomy 4, God gives 
Moses' commandment, and Moses carries it out. And this is what it says. Moses set apart on the east side of the Jordan three cities to which a homicide murderer could flee. Anyway, let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you that you have welcomed us into this day, that each of us have opened our eyes and put our feet on the ground, that we have a, a body that will respond, at least mostly, and that we can see and touch and feel and experience the love of the neighbors around us and the love of the creation that you surrounded us with. We are a grateful God, and we pray that we will have enough wisdom to stop and be grateful. We thank you, God, that today that there are doctors that will be attending to Rich, and we pray and lift the, this family up, oh God, that the hands will be steady and sure, and that this procedure will uh, be flawless, and that a good and speedy and complete recovery will ensue. Thank you, God, for all the hope that you give us all the time. We pray, God, for those who are mourning loss today. We pray for Lorna Miller and the loss of her mom yesterday. We thank you, God, that you have been in attendance to that family as they have walked with her through this last moments of her journey. And God, we thank you and we praise you and we ask that we might have hearts that are wide open and minds that are able to receive your word as it comes to us in your scripture. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen. You shall not murder. That's the scripture today from Exodus 20, 13, the sixth commandment. Of all the commandments, I think that this particular one is the most intimate and the most connected to the depths of the human soul that you can possibly be because it is a matter of our own existence. A few years ago, I was asked to put together a service at a, um, a penitentiary that housed uh, death row, and I was asked to put together a service, and the service, those invited to the service would be the victims of people that were murdered, would be the family, the, the family of the victims, would be the families of the perpetrators, and would be the uh, staff, so the guards, the warden, the chaplain, all of those together. And so it was a service called a service of remembrance and reconciliation. And so in putting that service together, it began to emerge for me even more profoundly than I had experienced before how 
there can never be an isolated murder. You can never kill someone and it doesn't, the, the effects of it goes out beyond its borders and beyond and beyond. And the effects of it are so profound and so um, excruciating for so many people that it really is so vital that we keep in mind that this is nothing casual and we cannot be callous about it. Because nothing, I think, enrages a person more or confuses a person more or bewilders a person more or disappoints or puts a knife in your heart more than the audacity of another person to take your loved one from you or for a system to decide there is no future, there is no hope. And so when that hopelessness comes, then we have this grand void. So what do we do with all of that? Our scripture, actually, those few words that you just heard are expounded upon throughout all of scripture, and we can come to some conclusions about it. So this is the, the last six commandments, and they have to do with relationships among social equals. That means it's not rules and regulations about people who are less than you or people that are more than you or people that are different than you. It's about all of us together. These six commandments are about how do we, how do we as a society interact and honor God's creation and God's order of creation. And that's going to be a big element in what we're going to talk about today. So uh, this commandment has come in for more than its share of consideration over the years, and not least in most recent times. And it's because people go to this and they take hold of it and they hold it as a proof text of whatever side they are happening to find themselves on from everything from war to capital punishment, suicide, euthanasia, self-defense, abortion. All of these are questions, but all of them have one thing in common. They're the ending of something. And so we look to this and we say, here is the word, the absolute word about that. You would hope that it would be that simple. It never is because life is not simple. We are complicated, aren't we? Um, though the command itself doesn't make any distinctions, we are faced with um, not only with its meaning, but with its possible legitimate extensions. Does it extend out to talk about self-defense? Does it extend out to talk about euthanasia and, and all of these other things? But before we can get to what the commandment means, we have to understand and we need to understand exactly what this commandment says. In point of fact, it's not quite so simple as saying that the commandment means you are never to kill. It's not that easy. The meaning of the verb to kill, rasach in Hebrew, has been very debated very debated about what this actually means. But uh, biblical linguist, linguistics 
has spent an enormous time of energy and uh, and and debate and also scholasticism on ferreting out what this means. And the way they can do that is they can look at the entire entirety of the scriptures along with the entirety of the way this term is used in extra biblical manuscripts. That means things that are outside of the Bible, like rules and regulations that are in other places. So how is this term used? What they came up with was, uh, I'm going to share with you the top three linguistic scholars of today and what they determined in their studies after all of these years. And one interesting thing to note is that Philip Ryken, who's one of those scholars, points out that the Hebrew language has at least eight different words for killing. Eight different words. So eight different. So when are those words used? That becomes very important as we look at the, what the scripture actually means. He says the, the Hebrew language has at least eight different words for killing. And that the word that's used in Exodus 20.13, Ratzak, refers to, and listen to this, because as I give you these definitions, it's going to be important that it informs you of how we talk about the rest of, of killing and death. So he says that it refers to the unjust killing of a legally innocent life. Riken translates the commandment as, you shall not kill unlawfully. And then we have the next scholar, William Propp, who argues that the translation, thou shalt not kill, is misleading and it's far too broad. He points out that the verb resak means illegally to kill a human being and translates the phrase, don't murder. So we have, you shall not kill unlawfully, and we have, don't murder. Then the third and final Douglas um, scholar, Douglas Stewart, says the word kill is specific to putting to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than with authorization as killing in the administration of justice or killing in divinely ordained holy war. And translate this commandment, never murder. So that word, that one word of the eight words that we have that's used in this particular scripture, you shall not kill unlawfully, don't murder, and never murder are the translations that we come up with for this particular scripture. And it's really important to understand that these commentators are not in any way trying to hedge their bets, looking for uh, loopholes for us as human beings because we seem to not be able to stop killing each other. But they are actually trying to offer an honest translation based on how the Old Testament itself speaks about killing. And what they've concluded after all of this research and all of this debate and all these years, the one thing that they have concluded is this. The Hebrew terminology is not offering us a wooden blanket ban on all killing in every circumstance. 
in view of certain passages, like from 1 King, it's been suggested that the verb, of course, is murder, as we just talked about. But in some, in some cases, it also refers to unintentional killing. Deuteronomy 4. In Deuteronomy 4, God gives Moses this commandment, and Moses carries it out. And this is what it says. Moses set apart on the east side of the Jordan three cities to which a homicide murderer could flee. Someone who unintentionally kills another person the two not having been at enmity before, the homicide, the murderer, could flee to one of these cities and live. So you see, it doesn't change the, the fact that a person has been killed. What changes is the consequence, is the penalty for that kind of death. And this penalty is, if it was unintentional and you didn't mean to, and it was an accident, in our terms it would be manslaughter, then you could go, you would have to leave your home and you would have to go and reside in these three cities, sanctuary cities. Or it may be in terms of an execution of a convicted killer. Numbers 3530 says this, if anyone kills another, rasat, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of a single witness. So there is that caveat as well. But it's interesting, this verb, rathat, is never used in all of scripture or extra-biblical language to describe the kind of killing that goes on during war. And that's something for us to consider, but we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. And probably we know that it's probably changed over the years in view of shifting historical circumstances. But that's really difficult to demonstrate because we know, as the, one of the gentlemen said this morning, before I even started, he said, all I know is a homicide is a homicide. And I said, we'll see. <laughs> so, but perhaps the, the command is best seen in function of 21 to uh, Exodus and Numbers 35, 20 through 21. And I want you to really listen to this, the, uh, this summary of those scriptures so that you hold on to what they're talking about when we talk about murder in its definition according to scripture. Any act of violence against an individual out of hatred, anger, malice, deceit, or for personal gain in whatever circumstances and by whatever method that might result in death, even if killing was not intention, that is rasat, and the penalty is death. So did you hear that explanation? So what you see is, what you see is the Old Testament is doing something that Jesus will do later. He, the Old Testament is internalizing that commandment. And it's saying, it's not so much about what you do, what you do, it's why did you do it? Why did you do it? So that list again, if you out of hatred, anger, malice, deceit, or for personal gain. 
Murder doesn't sufficiently capture this sense of the word. The more general word of kill, and this is important for us to understand as Christians today, that the Christian scholasticism has chosen to to retain that word kill instead of murder because the feeling is that it serves the community of faith best because what does it do? It forces the continual reflection on the meaning of the commandment and reminding all that in the taking of a human life for any reason, we are acting in God's place because life and death is a divine decision. Quite often, I would have, um, when I was a chaplain in the hospital, I would have people whose loved one was on life support, whether it was a small baby or whether it was a spouse or a mother or a father. And the recommendation made to them by the medical world was to take them off of life support. And they would come to me in such a confused state because they would say, they're asking me whether, you know, to kill my loved one. They're asking me whether my loved one should live or die. I, I, don't, I can't make that decision. And so for me, this theology became very significant to me because what I know in the deepest part of my brain is that life and death is not up to us. Whether we sustain breathing by a machine, we can make that decision. The only decision we can make is whether that we will sustain the up and down of a chest with a machine. When we take a person off a machine, we're not making the decision for them to die. We are making the decision for them if to live without a machine or to die without a machine but we're not making the decision. Do you see what I'm saying here? That is not our decision to make. Always it's in, it's in God's purview. So, um, so it's very important for us to understand that, that God is the one, that God is the one that makes a decision for life and death, ultimately. And for us to step into that and make the decision for God, that's why that is that destroys the natural order of the way God has created life to be for us. And so we have to, in some way, put that back into natural order. What it means is as Christians, we have to, in the face of, of, of this dilemma, whether it be of a society or of an individual, it should be a very lengthy pause filled with careful soul-searching and the absence of vengefulness and arrogance. So as a result, taking a human life should be a rarity. It should really never happen very often. That is not the reality of what we experience today. The basis of this command is that all life belongs to God. Just like, remember, we said all time belongs to God and God claims a piece of that time. And you're the same with life. All of life belongs to God. We don't get to say, we don't get, we don't have the, the privilege of saying, I will determine your, how long you live. I will determine it. 
not a disease, not all this or that, but I will take that into my own hands. The divine intention is that in creation is that no life be taken. That's the divine intention, and, and we're still trying to get to that. We aren't, we have not made it yet. We don't know quite what to do with ourselves because we still are not creative enough to come up with solutions beyond war, beyond violence. We just aren't there yet, but we're working. We're working on it. So life is not for human beings to do with as they will. They are not God. We are not God. It's up to God to determine what shall be done with life. So now this comes the really tricky part. That is, we believe that it's up to God with what will be done with life. The issue then becomes discernment. One of discernment regarding what is the divine determination. As people who claim they're doing this in in uh, God's honor, a holy war. I A holy war that doesn't have all of these things that we were talking about before, a personal gain or a vengefulness or all of these things that, are, that make up what murder, rasak is. I don't know about you, but I think that there would be a very limited, maybe count on one hand, holy wars that we had to uh, enter into for the sake of the whole order, for example. So we're left with a, in a pickle. And we're left, we are in a society today that with a push of a button, we could annihilate the world. Now talk about interfering with God's uh, order. This is a huge responsibility. And that's why some of the things that we're going through, the policies that are being made and whatever is so important for us to be knowledgeable about and anyway, to do as our conscience leads us to do. Human beings are never supposed to kill on their own authority. They're supposed to be agents of God, but how can that be determined? So in Israel, in the ancient Israel, they limited their use of capital punishment, for example, to only be specific to some of the things that were laid out later. You'll read about those in uh, Exodus, but also Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and a certain God-given laws that have to do with violating God's created order. God's created order is the way thing God created things to be. The issue also becomes a matter of world restoration. How do we restore the world back? So some of the things that are listed that are, are uh, infringing on how God created the world to be are, one, whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death. If it was not premeditated, but came about by an act of God, meaning that, for example, you, you, know, you get in a, a, a car wreck. This is exactly what I was talking about. It says by an act of God, um, you get in a car wreck and the other person dies. Did you have intention in your heart to kill that person? No, the person died because their life was ended. God determined. So it says, if it came about by an act of God, then I will appoint for you a place to which the killer may flee, those three sanctuary cities. But if someone willfully attacks and kills another by treachery, 
you shall take the killer from my altar for execution. Whoever strikes father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever kidnaps a person, and in this uh, particular um, translation, it means whoever kidnaps a slave, whether that person has been sold or is still in possession, shall be put to death. Whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. I think that we would not be here <laughs> if we still lived out this particular rule. But why is that one so important? And I just, let me just uh, draw your attention to the fact that Jesus was a Jew and Jesus preached to the Jews. He knew the Jewish law. So think about the prodigal son story. Think about that. When the young man, the young prodigal, goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance. In biblical times and in that tradition, what he is saying to his father is, I wish you were dead because you don't get your inheritance until the parent dies. So in essence, he cursed his father. He went to his father and cursed him and said, I, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. So if they were living out the law, this younger prodigal would be subject to death. Think about the revolutionary story that Jesus told in that story. The father runs out to greet him, and he, oh my goodness. Just think about the ramifications of that. And it's just mind-boggling how Jesus, he, he doesn't flip the commandments on their head. He brings back the intention of these commandments and grabs it out of the, the legalistic, legalistic uh, minds of those who would say black is black and white is white. So it says, and this one I have a little issue with, a big issue, because it's so qualitative. It says, you shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. <laughs> what? Where, what about the male sorcerers? Nope, but it just says a, a female sorcerer. Whoever has intercourse with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. So similar arguments were used in ancient Israel for divine support in holy wars. But this gets really sticky. Who's going to determine that it's a holy war? Are, and we're going to make that determination. That's why it's always so startling to me. I just feel like, <gasps> when I hear people say, God is on our side. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you positive? Because I would rather be on God's side than assume that God is on my side. They constitute... Um, when we when we go down that slippery slope of determining what we that we believe we know what is in God's mind, it constitutes a threat to God's world order unparalleled in human history. And that threat we have, like I said, right now, we have an opportunity to annihilate a whole well, we have the opportunity to annihilate all whole peoples and the entire world and one another. We have that. So the issue of discernment regarding the divine will remains a central issue. And we can go back and we can look at all the other places that this is talked about. And what is the divine will of God? That we should love 
one another. That's the divine will of God spelled out in scripture. Not for, there's no mystery around this. Not least in recognition of the principle, but there are new occasions that teach new duties and new responsibilities. For example, who would claim that 21, 15 through 17 is applicable today? Whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. We're not going to put people to death, but there's something that also happens is that you, you are in peril of killing another soul. And that's just as dramatic. The criteria to be applied in many other cases is much more complex. But what we have to do is we have to keep an openness to both the limit and the extent of the meaning of this commandment beyond its original formulation for new life situations. And we need to do that because we have, we have circumstances that are very different that, that our ancients never faced, but yet this remains true to itself. But always with God's creational intentions in view. How, if something is upside down, if something is, is going against and just, just annihilating the order of how God has created the world to be, what can we do to restore that order? Now, you may say, and you may say this rightly, that you have never murdered anybody. How many of you can say that? I've never murdered anybody. If you don't raise your hand, I'm, I'd like to just to chat with you afterwards or something. But, I mean, I, I don't want to assume that. I don't want to be flippant about it. But we are tempted to say that that we've never murdered anybody, and we can say, I have never physically taken a life. And if it was that easy, how wonderful it would be. If it was just that easy to excuse ourselves, would that we could so simply sidestep the charge of guilt regarding murder. If only Jesus <clears throat> hadn't delivered that sermon on the mount. If only he hadn't delivered that Sermon on the Mount when he made it much more clear about our responsibilities in this particular area. But he did deliver that Sermon on the Mount. And he said something that's very telling about this commandment. It's very telling and it's very serious. So we read this in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother and sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. Whoever curses his brother or sister or says, you fool, and these are the strongest words of Jesus I've ever read. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. No equivocating about that. How can one be the same as the other? How can that possibly be? And another scripture, Paul, who loves litanies, by the way, he loves to give these lists. They're never complete, by the way, just so you think that there's only like these, this many gifts and there's this many and this many. No, no, he's just starting. He's just getting started. So in a litany, he includes, he says, and it, you know, let's not do gossip and licentiousness and murder. Gossip and murder in the same litany? How can they be equal? 
So as he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, so if you want to go back and see how Jesus fulfills these uh, commandments, go read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and you'll see how he says this is what that commandment is all about. Jesus raises the stakes on the commandment by internalizing them. Once again, even the Old Testament already did that in some sense, but Jesus is really doing that by showing us that we could actually violate these commandments inwardly without ever having physically touched another person. Specifically, Jesus says that we can be guilty of murder by being angry with another and by insulting and cursing another. How can that be? And it can be because murderous rage. And, and let's, let's make it very clear. I'm not talking about getting ticked off at your neighbor. I'm not talking about, you know, a, a casual remark or whatever. I'm talking about a murderous rage in which you will say and do things that, to, that you're seeking to do the same thing that murder is doing, and that is to diminish and ultimately destroy another human being. Is that not a problem in our society today? That somebody can do something or say something, and one million people can judge that and can destroy their reputation, who they are, what they're about? Is that not a serious situation that we are in today. Could you not destroy somebody by the simple text that you send to a group? Could you not destroy somebody by passing along a story you don't know if it's true or not and it's none of your business if it is? Could you not be a part of this murderous rank? You know, <clears throat> Ruby... Uh, Freeman and Shay Moss. I don't know if you're familiar with those two names. They are a mother and daughter. They recently won a $46 million lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani. They just are a mother and daughter who for years have counted ballots in, I forget what state it is, you know, Minnesota or someplace. And when during this great... Uh, uh, tectonic plates shifting and the world exploding of our last uh, um, elections, Giuliani targeted them, those two, and began to defame them, began to uh, talk about them, and began to lift them up as the crooks and criminals, and what, without any basis, without any, his intention, you see. What was his intention behind that? He destroyed their lives. They had to move. They could no longer do what they had loved to do before, and that was just count ballots for the county. They were getting death threats. And so they determined, they determined our law determined that, that he should give them $146 million. So what did he do immediately? He went out and said, everything I said was true. No remorse, whatever. So now they're back in court with another lawsuit because he is destroying them with what intent in his heart. And behind such rage and behind such insults and behind such sense of self-gain 
is the same blasphemous mindset that is behind murder. So you see, it's not, it's not about the action. It's about why did you do the action? And yes, the action, you'll have to bear the consequences of it. But God is interested in why you did what you did. God is the one that is seeing into your, the very interior of your being and, and asking you to consider, to take a pause and to consider what you're about to say, what you're about to do, how you're about to treat another person. Could it possibly be misinterpreted as a murdering of the soul? To insult another is not only to tear them down, but to exalt yourself upwards. To rage against another person, in other words, is to presume that you are so much better than they are. And they have, they have offended your delusions of deity. Meaning it's the, op the opposite of you are a fool is I am God. So, so when we're out on that freeway, and a person is driving 20 miles an hour, and we're in a 70-mile 